0: KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.
1: How FDA approval could usher in vaccine mandates at work?
2: Now I think that full approval has been given. There's less likelihood for an argument to be made when a mandate is issued.
1: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. (music) Vietnam veterans weigh in on the Afghanistan withdrawal.
3: Uh, It's almost identical to the scenes that I saw uh, evacuating from the rooftop of our embassy in Saigon.
1: A close look at how the governor's recall campaign was fueled by public school closures and the pandemic impact on this year's Vista Viking Fest. That's ahead on midday edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by.
1: Yesterday the FDA gave full approval to the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for those 16 years and older. Even before the news came down, vaccine mandates from employers were already in the works, but will we now see many more? To talk about how this impacts vaccine mandates in the workplace, we're joined by Alreen Hayquest, managing partner of the employment law firm Hayquest and Eck. Alreen, welcome.
2: Hi, thank you.
1: So how does the FDA's announcement yesterday giving full approval to the Pfizer vaccine change the way we're talking about vaccine mandates?
2: So from, you know, my perspective, and I think most employment attorneys would agree, from a legal perspective, it doesn't change. The emergency use authorization vaccines, with that, employers could mandate employees get them. I think this is just going to allow more employers to be more comfortable you know, putting a mandate in place because it's not the emergency use authorization and there's not this legal argument that was previously made about them. And we think (laughs) we're predicting more employees will be more likely to who don't want to be vaccinated will be more likely to get the vaccine. So I think that's how we're going to see it change. But from a legal perspective, I mean, employers could have mandated them before.
1: Talk to me a bit more about how it's making more employers comfortable with the idea of a vaccine mandate.
2: So prior to I guess get, getting full approval there was an argument that was being made that because it was an emergency use authorization that that was unlawful in some way and that was challenged in Texas and you know the judge threw it out but there was at least an argument to be made and I think that made employers uncomfortable because you know they don't want to face further liability and so I think that made employers uncomfortable and now I think that full approval has been given there's less likelihood for an argument to be made when a mandate is issued.
1: Even before this announcement, vaccine mandate plans had been in the works, especially in government agencies and the public sector. Do you now expect to see more vaccine mandates coming from the private sector?
2: Yes, I think people have been talking about them. I mean, I think employers, you know, one, you want to keep your employees. You don't want to make people forced to do anything. They don't want to change the culture of their firm or their private practice. And so they haven't maybe wanted to push the mandate and they've encouraged vaccinations. But at the same time, they want to create a safe environment for all the employees that work there. And I think we're going to see more mandates come out because I think employers are going to be more comfortable pushing them out with the idea that most employees will get them and want to stay as opposed to leave and go somewhere else.
1: Let me ask you this. So what might these vaccine mandates look like?
2: So... It's just in order to continue, you know, being employed here, we're going to require a vaccine unless you have an exception. And there's really only two exceptions that you can have. One is you have a disability exception. So you need to be accommodated by not getting a vaccine. Um, And if they have a note, you know, and the employer can accommodate that disability, then we're going to see the employer not require that employee to get a vaccine. And then the other exception would be a religious accommodation. So based on their sincere religious beliefs, they can't get a vaccine. Besides that, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, this is going to be a new policy that this company is going to have. We're going to require our employees to do this. And then they're going to need to, you know, have somebody kind of take charge of that process um, and keep record of it. And so one, I think it's going to allow other employees to feel safer, um, as well as the company to know that their workforce can be there. Um, without having to get regular testing and without having to wear masks.
1: Hmm. What are you hearing from small businesses in regards to how to tackle vaccine mandates with their employees?
2: We hear more from employees. We're an employee rights firm. And so the calls that we get are primarily from employees who, you know, are telling us that their employer is requiring it and they don't want to get it. Um, And our response is, is the same to everybody, you know, is they can require it unless you have some exception unless you have a disability and your doctor saying you can't get vaccinated or if you have a, you know, a sincere religious belief that prevents you from getting um, a vaccine. And even in those cases, if the employer can't accommodate you, right, the accommodation, for example, if you can't get a vaccine, you know, you can work remotely. If that's not an option for your employer, then they can still mandate it. And, you know, as a result, you don't have to continue working there.
1: Does this get a little prickly in terms of, of HIPAA? You know, if, if you're an employee and now you have to divulge that you've got an, an autoimmune uh, disorder or something and you can't get the vaccine. I mean, are there any issues about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the employer can't ask, you know, I think the note just needs to be sufficient enough for the employer to know they have a condition that prevents them from getting a vaccine, but the employer can't know all the underlying conditions that are preventing them from getting the vaccine. An employer does need to be mindful about the questions it's asking about the disability and the underlying conditions.
1: Mm. And for an employee who does not want to be vaccinated again, even now, what recourse do they have if their workplace requires one?
2: To, you know, find a workplace that doesn't. Not everybody is requiring them. Not all employers, you know, want to have mandates in place. And so there is going to be a split. And so maybe finding a place that doesn't require it if you feel strongly about it.
1: I've been speaking with Alreen Hayquist, managing partner of the employment law firm Hayquist and Eck. Alreen, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. Have a great day.
4: The U.S. will continue until the end of the month to provide airlifts out of Afghanistan. Military and commercial jets are flying American citizens and some foreign nationals out of the nation that is now ruled by the Taliban. The images of chaos in Afghanistan have deeply resonated with veterans from another long war, Vietnam. Both conflicts ended with an enemy takeover of the capital city and a desperate American-led evacuation. Some Vietnam veterans say the Afghanistan withdrawal has triggered symptoms of post-traumatic stress, while others are voicing frustration and powerlessness. Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project.
5: In just a week, the Taliban took control of the Afghan government and are returning the country to a theocracy. Haunting images of Afghans overwhelming the Kabul airport and hasty evacuations dominated news coverage and social media. For Russ Clark, a former Marine infantry officer who fought in Vietnam, the scenes feel strikingly familiar.
3: um, I'm seeing right now the scene of uh, the evacuation um, going on. The um, helicopters or choppers, as we called them, on the uh, roof of uh, our embassy there Uh, It's almost identical to the scenes that I saw uh, evacuating from the rooftop of our embassy in Saigon. And so, yes, it triggers a lot of uh, those memories.
5: The emotions are much the same, too, with a heavy dose of grief and confusion over what it all meant.
3: The feeling is one of um, pain, (laughs) um, futility, sense of uh, powerlessness, even embarrassment, uh, deflation. Uh, all of those are what I'm naming uh, as part of what I'm dealing with right now.
5: Echoes of Vietnam aren't just affecting Clark. Steve Schwab, CEO of the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, calls this an acute crisis for veterans of that era, many of whom were already facing service-related injuries.
6: Before this withdrawal, we saw rising suicide rates among Vietnam veterans because they're at that age And they're suffering from those conditions and they're experiencing loneliness and disconnectedness at levels that are obscene. And then you layer this on top of that um, and it amounts to a crisis.
5: Schwab says he's hearing from veterans who are consumed by television news and social media, which is a huge trigger for their PTSD, anxiety, and depression. He adds that Vietnam veterans are dealing with an extra layer of stress given the similarities between Afghanistan and the war they fought.
7: And
6: frankly, many of them um, predicted and warned this might happen again. And sure enough, right, they're seeing that play out. So for many of them, their worst fears have come true.
5: In recent days, the Dole Foundation, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the military health system, and other veterans-serving organizations have sent out email blasts offering support and mental health resources to veterans and their families. Advocates across the board are urging veterans to disconnect from the news and connect with other people. Ron Harris served alongside Russ Clark in Vietnam as a Navy medical corpsman. He has some advice for younger veterans who may be struggling now. Get help.
6: Talk with your friends. Talk with those who were close to you during those times in Afghanistan and get get help. If you're you're having it bad, get into professional counseling now. You know, uh, when we came back from Vietnam, we didn't really have that stuff.
5: Harris says he feels irritable and angry about what's happening in Afghanistan, but he credits his wife and family with helping him get through it, just as they did when he got back from Vietnam.
6: The good things that uh, are in my life, I mean, I'm thankful. I have uh, four great children, eight grandchildren, and I mean, we're heavily involved and invested in uh, family, uh, and that
5: helps. Harris says it took him years to come to terms with his experiences in Vietnam. He hopes that with greater support networks, the after-effects of war will be easier for younger veterans to manage. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio.
4: This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
4: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. The recall campaign, now aimed at Governor Gavin Newsom, was fueled in part by parents, who were angry with how he handled public school closures during the worst months of the pandemic. KQED Politics reporter Katie Orr takes a look at the controversy and the criticisms of Newsom. The
8: mood was festive outside George Washington Carver Elementary in San Francisco's Bayview neighborhood recently. Parents clapped and cheered as students lined up to go inside for their first day back to school after summer break.
3: If
5: you are a third. Greater, Mr. Dolan and Ms. Siabong's third greatest.
8: Across the bay, Mom Megan Bachigalupe was ecstatic to be sending her kids back to school in the Oakland Unified
5: District. Myself, my husband, and I think my kids especially are just thrilled to be back with all of their friends in a full classroom and you know, as close to normal as I think they have probably felt in a long time. Bacigalupi was
8: extremely frustrated that her kids had to stay home last year as some private schools and a few public districts around her opened up for in-person learning. So she started Open Schools California, an organization focused on getting more kids back in the classroom. She says Newsom wasn't decisive enough when it came to education during the pandemic.
5: Words don't matter if most of the kids are still sitting at home. And I think he decisively, essentially with the stroke of a pen, closed schools last spring when it was likely the right thing to do in the immediacy. But he took no decisive action to get them back up.
8: Bacigalupi says she heard from many frustrated parents, many progressive Democrats like her, who signed the recall petition. In fact, Newsom never ordered California schools to close, though the statewide stay-at-home order essentially had that effect. Kevin Gordon is president of Capital Advisors Group, which lobbies for school districts all across the state. He says many districts wanted Newsom to act unilaterally.
3: Schools that normally don't like the state infringing on their local control were actually hoping the governor would just do a statewide edict that were are closing schools physically so they didn't have to wrestle with the local politics. Gordon
8: says he believes Newsom handled an unprecedented and complicated situation really well, though he says the governor got trapped between his strong support for public education and his loyalty to the labor unions that have always backed him.
3: And where they became this conflict was wanting kids to be back in school, but his own constituencies across labor not wanting to come back.
8: But the California Teachers Association's Becky Zogelman points out schools' teachers and staff weren't the only people concerned about returning to in-person learning. Many parents were also hesitant.
7: When schools started to reopen, for example, you know, 70 percent of parents in Los Angeles chose to keep their kids home. And that played out in districts across the state.
8: But controversy around the way Newsom's dealing with schools keeps popping up. He's been criticized for issuing strict COVID guidelines for schools last summer and for not being more forceful about reopening schools last spring when the vaccine became available. He's taken heat for sending his own children back to in-person learning at a private school while most California public school students attended virtually. More recently, Newsom's been sued over the state's requirement that all adults and students wear masks indoors in K-12 schools, even if they've been fully vaccinated. Newsom's handling of education has been a key talking point for recall candidates like Republican Assemblyman Kevin Kiley.
6: He's just saying whatever is necessary to cater to the agenda of the teachers unions who want the outcome of schools being closed, and he'll give whatever rationale it takes to get there.
8: But, at a recent press conference, Newsom maintained he's been following the science while also balancing a massive system.
6: We have been working with our partners in our education system, 1,050-plus school districts. We're trying to support the needs of 6.1 million public school kids. And we have been engaged to address the concerns and anxiety around reopening our schools.
8: For now, schools are open across California, even as the Delta variant remains a concern. We may know more about whether that's enough to satisfy parents frustrated by Newsom's evolving positions after the recall election
4: next month. That was KQED's politics reporter, Katie Orr.
1: San Diego's first chief race and equity officer, Kim Desmond, started the job this week. Desmond will be heading up the city's Office of Race and Equity, which was unanimously passed by the city council last year after the murder of George Floyd. The office and Desmond are tasked with recognizing and addressing systemic bias and providing expertise and support to elected officials, the SDPD, And city staffers. KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim caught up with Kim Desmond on her second day on the job to discuss what to expect from the Office of Race and Equity. Here's that interview.
9: When you explain your job as the Chief Race and Equity Officer to your friends and family, how do you explain that job in just kind of the most simple, like layman terms? The way
7: that I explain my job to my family and friends is important because it's the way that I live my purpose. And the way that I define it, I start out by saying, we can't spell community without the word unity. So when I explain my job to my friend and family, I say to them, we got to ensure that everyone's thriving. And we have to define what thriving looks like. We have to define how we make sure that everyone has their individual needs met. We got to make sure that everyone has opportunities. Everyone has resources. And everybody has a city that's responsive to their needs in their neighborhoods.
9: And how do you help that happen? What do you see as kind of like your role within this massive system to make sure that that is, that that is exactly what is happening?
7: My role is systems work. And what that looks like is going in to say, we need different things in different neighborhoods. We need to make sure that everyone has access to recreation centers, make sure that everyone has access to safe roads, to repairs in their streets, make sure that everyone has access to a quality education. And so my job is to work with all of our 11,000 employees to understand how we bring action to local government services. And that means working with our employees to ensure they understand what it means to unpack systemic racism. And so equity is about ensuring that we are meeting those disparities head on.
9: So this office has never existed. It was just made in 2020. So you're coming into a new role. You're the first and you're also leading an office that hasn't existed. What are your priorities in the first 100 days? And kind of what agenda are you setting for this first year?
7: Although this is the first office, offices like this are popping up around the country. And so there are colleagues that I am tapped in with around the country that is doing this work. And so I'm not alone out here. Like we definitely are sharing best practices. And so as such, my first 100 days includes building out a race and social justice learning and development academy for city employees. We need for our, all of our city employees to understand what it means to really do equitable work, what it means to unpack and understand systemic racism. So that's my first priority, is to make sure that our employees are really engaging with understanding what this work means, historically and currently. The second thing I'm gonna do in the first 100 days is really get out there and listen to our people in our community. I'm gonna make myself very visible, I'm gonna go out there and listen to the individual needs in every district. It's about individualizing our services to those different districts. And so I'm gonna go out there and listen, I'm gonna be going and doing town halls, individual meetings, and all types of things to ensure that I'm collecting information to inform our mayor on ways to continually build a more equitable and inclusive government. Last but not least, I also am gonna go and make sure that we are looking at our budget decisions with an equity lens, to ensure that we are creating an inclusive budget where all of those needs are prioritized. And so most certainly gonna hit the ground in those first hundred days to ensure that all of our mayor appointees understand their role as leaders, to make sure that they're leading the departments in ways that are building those outcomes.
9: What are some of the biggest obstacles you expect to face in this new role? I mean, I know you're previously the chief equity officer in Denver. You have, you know, you've been around this work. So coming now to San Diego, what obstacles are you anticipating?
7: I think the, the largest obstacle in this work is knowing that you want to change everything quickly. You wanna look at and change historic inequities that have created disparities. So the hardest thing is watching those disparities. It's knowing that it's gonna take time. It's gonna take time to chip away and organize our services and resources. The hardest thing I would say is also creating a space where everybody understands the work. Everybody understands how we define equity and what it means to lead in that way and be inclusive as a city employee.
9: After the death of George Floyd, there was a rush of investment by city leaders, by corporations to really address and invest in racial justice and equity. Do you worry that this is a temporary investment?
7: I don't think it's a temporary investment. I think that historically, this has been a problem that we have seen in terms of how institutions have not created the outcomes that we want to see. So, what I see is that. People are here to make sure that this work is sustained. They're here to make sure that these systems are confronting and dismantling structural racism and structural inequity that have been baked into systems for centuries. And so I want to make sure that we are here to say that this work is not going anywhere. We see offices around the country, including in San Diego with me in this position, who we're gonna create policies to ensure that it lasts outside of me being in this position. Mayor Gloria has been very clear about that. When we leave these positions, we're gonna leave a local government that's more equitable and more inclusive. We see around the country that folks are demanding, they're demanding liberation and they're demanding equity from their local governments. And so that's not something that you can kind of just shove away based on on a different administration.
9: What do you say to people who are questioning even the need for this type of office? You know, they think that maybe this is just a performative gesture from the city. How do you begin to explain the role that this office is gonna have and also regain that trust?
7: To regain the trust, I would say to folks, and sometimes individuals don't see themselves in equity. Everyone is diverse. Everyone has a unique need. Our words, our our roads serve as connection points into folks who are questioning this work. I would say to them, when one of us is thriving, all of us is thriving. It's about caring that in our neighborhoods, there may be different needs and you want someone to respond to your need. Do you ever think that
9: it's like the onus shouldn't fall on people of color, on black women to fix structural racism when the problem wasn't created necessarily by people of color in the first place?
7: We're dealing with a very complex problem, and we can't expect one racial group to carry the burden and the pressure of that. As a Black woman in this work, it most certainly is heavy to carry on my shoulders. And so um, I expect to partner with all of my white colleagues to ensure that they understand their work, their role in carrying forth liberatory work in local government. You know, all of us have a role in this work. And we all need to see what that role looks like. It may be different. And so I think collectively we can partner to ensure that the burden doesn't fall on just one group of folks.
9: If and when you ever leave this post, what is the number one thing that you really hope to
7: accomplish here in San Diego as the chief race and equity officer? I would say to create a lasting policy that ensures the integrity of the office remains. When we leave, when I leave City Hall, when Mayor Todd Gloria Lee City Hall, we want to look back and say, we have created policies that have lasting generational change. So that way, future administrations can come in and say, we're going, to keep the, we're going to keep the ball moving. Culturally, we say we're going to keep carrying the water. And so we're going to carry the water. And then when we get to the parts where it's time for us to stop, we're going to make sure that that water continues.
9: Thank you so much for speaking with me, Kim. You're welcome. That was Christina
1: Kim speaking with San Diego's first Chief Race and Equity Officer, Kim Desmond.
4: A project proposed to restore marshland habitat around Mission Bay could be a plus for the environment and be an economic windfall for San Diego. That's because the carbon that may be trapped in the existing wetlands could be used to offset pollution goals for the city. But the rewild Mission Bay proposal is in competition with an alternative proposal to cut back on marshland and build more amenities around Mission Bay. A coalition of the Audubon Society, the Kumeyaay Nation, and Scripps scientists are urging the city to study and adopt the marshland reclamation plan. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Garrick. And David, welcome.
10: Hey, thanks for having me.
4: Why do scientists believe that there may be significant amounts of carbon trapped under Mission Bay?
10: Well, that's sort of what marshland and and wetlands do. Um, They pull carbon out of the atmosphere, like lots of plant life does, but they do it at a more accelerated rate. And then they put it underneath the surface uh, of the ground. So when we use the word trapped, it's almost like trapped in a good way. We want to trap carbon. We want to get it out of the atmosphere so it's not creating climate change and heating up the planet. So this is a good version of trapping.
4: And Mission Bay traditionally was mostly marshland, wasn't it? The entire thing was
10: a giant marsh. And, you know, humans decided we had power over nature and that why would they want this silly thing that's half water and half land? And so after World War II, it was dredged to be all the areas were either land or or water, as opposed to what it used to be which was sort of a tweener. The entire area was sort of half water, half land, very marshy.
4: And do we know what types of vegetation existed there?
10: Lots of native vegetation. I'm not an expert on the specific details, but lots of California native stuff, uh, which is sort of another important thing that's a a side benefit of this. There are a lot of ecosystems that will benefit from restoring this marshland, birds, plants, fish life that, that has struggled in Mission Bay since the area was dredged and turned into a water park after World War II.
4: How would the carbon that is trapped under the bay be measured? Basically, they're going to use sediment coring, sample
10: dating, and geochemical analyses and those are sort of fancy scientific terms for sort of checking the, the rock and the dirt underneath Mission Bay to see how much carbon is in there.
4: And why would trapped carbon equal an economic benefit to the city? Well, the
10: way that some carbon proposals work as we face these you know, daunting climate change uh, challenges are that you can use offsets. If you've trapped carbon in some other part, a part of your city, then you can maybe account for areas where you're creating carbon as a city. So as part of the City of San Diego's Climate Action Plan, the more carbon sequestration they can show in some areas allows them to emit carbon in other areas or sell it to businesses or other cities. So it could be a financial windfall as well.
4: And how much do they estimate this trapped carbon could equal economically? They've said millions, which is a
10: very vague word. I don't know if that's hundreds of millions or three million, but they've said millions. But I think, honestly, they don't know maybe because this was a marsh for a long, long time dating back to the Kumeyaay Indians, as you had mentioned earlier, and probably even longer than that. So the amount of carbon under there could be shockingly huge. I'm not an expert on such things, but in other words, it's hard to know the amount that might be under there.
4: There is some existing marshland left in the area. Where is that? And do people have access to it? It's
10: a very small corner. Uh, It's called the Kendall Frost Marsh. It's right off of Crown Point, if you know part of Mission Bay Park. And it's only about maybe 40 to 60 acres. And it's all fenced off. You know, the city faces this dilemma. And so do the scientists. Like, you want people to have access to the marshland so that they can appreciate it and support it but also access damages the marshland. So basically, they open it up once a year in February for the public to come in and wander around and and check it out. And scientists have access on a more uh, frequent basis. But it's basically fenced off from the public to preserve it because it's the last remaining marshland in Mission Bay. And it's sort of a precious commodity.
4: So if the rewild Mission Bay proposal is accepted, what areas surrounding the bay would be part of that expansion?
10: We're not 100% sure, but we, can, we know for sure that camp land on the bay would be part of that. RV parking would move to a new location, but the current site of camp land on the bay would become all marshland. And then the De Anza Cove mobile home park, part of that would become wetlands. And that's sort of the key area of dispute. Everyone accepts that camp land on the bay will become marshland. The question is how much of De Anza Cove will become marshland? The city's proposal has a small amount. The rewild proposal has most of it.
4: And what was the city planning for redevelopment in that area if it's not marshland?
10: Yeah, um, you know, restaurant, uh, uh, recreational activities, uh, you know, volleyball courts, a wide range of things like that, which I mean, a lot of the public would really like, you know, to see. But obviously, marshland and climate change are sort of, you know, I think some folks think a higher priority than more recreation. I mean, Mission Bay Park has a lot of recreation already, some would argue.
4: Do scientists hope that what they learn from Mission Bay may help carbon sequestration projects across California?
10: For sure. I mean, they say this could be a model. It's a very unusual to have a giant marsh this large. Uh, You know, I don't think there's any others in California. I'm not an expert on the entire state, but I think it's a pretty unique situation. And so it definitely could provide some valuable lessons and, and information.
4: I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, thank you. Thanks for having me. We know that housing prices in San Diego have skyrocketed since the pandemic. Low inventory has sellers routinely getting multiple offers over their asking price. But now it's apparently a seller's market in new cars, too. Shifts in the supply chain during the last year have lowered the number of new cars available, just as buyers are emerging ready for a shiny new vehicle. The result? car dealers getting bids over the manufacturer's suggested retail price, something virtually unheard of in the industry. Joining me with more on the crazy car market is San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nicolesky. And Rob, welcome.
6: Good to talk to you again, Maureen.
4: The pandemic not only caused a slump in car sales last year, but it shifted around the supply chain, causing this low inventory of new cars. Tell us what happened.
6: Yeah, it was kind of a chain reaction. What ended up happening was, because of the lockdowns at the beginning of the pandemic, people just stopped driving and they stopped buying cars, and car makers stopped selling cars. And because they, and when they did that, they ended up telling their computer chip suppliers, we don't need all these computer chips anymore because we're not selling any more cars. So the con- computer chip makers shifted over to consumer electronics, which was had an uptick because of the pandemic. And as far as uh, education, working from home, that sort of stuff, because more and more people were, were, were staying at home. Then, We got into late summer last year, car sales started picking back up. And then the car makers went back to the chip makers and said, we need chips because we need to start making more cars. And the chip makers said, well, we've already committed to these other people and there's been a shortage of chips. And that has led to a slowdown in the number of cars being manufactured.
4: And how is the new COVID surge in Asia slowing recovery as well?
6: Well, because the Delta variant has hit Southeast Asia very hard, and Malaysia is a big maker of these computer chips that go into cars, as, you know, in their brake sensors, in their entertainment systems, into new cars. Well, they have not been able to pick up the pace to make up for all the, uh, the need that car makers have for these chips
4: what's happening these days when people go car shopping? I guess good deals are pretty much gone.
6: Yeah, they're pretty much out the window right now. In fact, I got the tip on this story because I was talking to a friend of mine who was in the market to buy a new car. He wanted to get a Toyota RAV4 and he was telling me, oh, I went to a local dealer and um, I asked them about the RAV4 and I was interested in buying it. And the the uh, salesperson there said, "Well, we're really down on 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 the uh, on inventory. Inventory is really down. But on top of that, sir, I just wanted to let you know that if you want to get this particular car, you're going to have to pay the sticker price plus five thousand dollars." <laughs> and he said, "What?" And that's he told me that story, and I, that's how I got ended up writing the story for the Union Tribune because I. I had not heard that before, but I called a few car analysts and they told me, yeah, that's what's happening out there.
4: Now by tracking new car registrations in California, you can see that sales are booming this year. How much are they up?
6: They're up 32% in the first six months of this year compared to the first six months of last year. And when you look at just the second quarter numbers that came out recently. The second quarter of this year, up 96% compared to the second quarter of last year. And that was really, I mean, you're talking about the second quarter, you're talking uh, April, May, June. Those were really the, the doldrums for the car uh, industry as far as car sales go last year. So up 96%. So it's, it's a big number, but it's not that surprising compared to last year.
4: And what about San Diego's numbers?
6: San Diego's done better than just about any other region in, uh, at least among the major regions in California. San Diego's up 35% over the um, first six months of this year. That's uh, a few percentage points better than the LA slash Orange County area, as well as the Bay Area.
4: And are electric vehicles and hybrids affected by the production crunch too?
6: Yes, they are, because a lot of the same Computer chips go into electric vehicles as they do into uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, but electric vehicle sales have, have uh, done very well. If car dealers can get a car, whether it's an internal combustion engine vehicle or an electric vehicle, they can sell it at this, at this point.
4: Now, how has the shortage of new cars affected the used car market?
6: Rather dramatically. There have been stories, some of them anecdotal, but a lot of them, uh, as, as a matter of course, that because of the shortage of new cars out there, there's greater demand for used cars. And that was happening even before the pandemic, uh, because the price of a new car even before all this was going up, that a, a number of people were looking at one-year-old cars, two-year-old cars to buy to save a little bit of money. Well, now, because of the shortage of new cars, there's also been a shortage of used cars as well.
4: What advice are car experts giving buyers during this car frenzy?
6: They're basically saying if you can wait, then wait. And you may have to wait a long time, six months to a year they're talking about. But um, because that's when they're figuring how long it'll take for this chip shortage to work its way out and for equilibrium to return to the marketplace.
4: I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nicoleski. Rob, thank you.
6: Thank you, Maury.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs. Featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Every year, community groups in Vista come together to put on the Vista Viking Festival at the Norway Hall. But with the onset of the pandemic last year, the festival had to pivot and take its world online. The same is true this year. Annika Colbert, the host of KPBS's San Diego News Now podcast, spoke to James Nelson Lucas, the director of PR and media for the Vista Viking Festival. He begins by describing a pre-pandemic festival. Here's that interview.
11: Well, if you've ever heard of a renaissance fair, it's like a renaissance fair only 500 years earlier in history. Um, so, uh, we have our Viking encampments where we're living history. Viking groups have their own camps. They all have their own specialties. One group runs our weapons range where you can come and shoot arrows and, uh, throw axes. Another one runs our blacksmith shop. So there's lots of shopping, there's food, there's music and entertainment and lots and lots of Vikings.
12: So what would you say the atmosphere is like at an in-person festival?
11: oh jovial and convivial i would say we the festival is actually an outgrowth of our own internal festivals so you really get that feeling that there is a family there it's like uh being invited into our home really the viking festival and getting to see what we do all year round once a year
12: so i know viking festival was virtual last year as well how did that translate to going online what was all involved
11: well i had to uh get all of the entertainment Uh, lined up some of them were able to do live shows some of them pre-taped some things especially for us Uh, I had to deal with the merchants those of those of whom uh, sell online make sure that they were advertised I got all of my different uh, Viking groups to do uh, different videos of how they set up their camp and what their specialty is and uh, we invited people to come and watch all of that online. We had a, a, fairly, good, uh, a fairly good turnout on the online festival. And uh, many people enjoyed We got to have entertainment, uh, especially that we don't get to have every year. Some of the bands only come one every other year or something like that. So I was able to choose from all of our, our uh, uh, vendors and entertainers we've had over the years.
12: And uh, I, I imagine the biggest question right now that fans have is, um, wh- why is the festival online again this year?
11: Well, as as everybody knows, the things with COVID have been in such flux. Um, it, we weren't able to guarantee that we could pull off the festival that we know we are capable of under those restrictions. We usually have about 10,000 people come through there on a weekend We didn't think we had the ability to make sure that everybody was going to be safe. So we've been having smaller events with smaller crowds where we can control uh, the safety issues better. And frankly, we weren't able to get all of the permits we would have needed anyway. Uh, Cities and, and counties weren't issuing the permits we needed at the time.
12: There's are several groups that come together to make Viking Fest happen. There's the Sons of Norway, Daughters of Norway, Norway Hall Foundation, just to name some of them. Can you talk to us a bit about who these groups are and what they do?
11: All right. Uh, well, you also, we also have the Norwegian Fish Club Odin. So the first off is the Sons of Norway Norgalodge. They are the very beginning of all of this. They've got that land in Vista in 19. 19- in early 50s and our hall was built in 55 and it's been uh, the home of the sons of norway ever since the Sons of norway norga lodge there was also another group there the fish club it's it's all around the country in scandinavian lodges and norwegian lodges men get together for a fish club and historically it's been a bunch of guys in suits with the cigars and the scotch and all of that but when the current Odin, who leads our Norwegian fish club, took over, he decided to make it into an all gender sort of situation. And every it was going to be Viking themed. So each of us in the group have to assume a Viking name uh, and, and wear our Viking outfits when we go to our gatherings. The Norway Hall Foundation is now owning the property. So all these gatherings we had the Norwegian Fish Club with all their Viking people and the Sons of Norway with all of their Sons of Norway people and the Daughters of Norway. We would have we have regular celebrations: spring celebration, fall celebration, etc. And over the years, as more and more Vikings showed up and more people joined the lodge, our fall festival got so big we needed to start selling tickets. So that's how the Viking Festival was born. And, So those four groups basically form form the core of the Viking festival. And then we have numerous Viking reenactment groups, some of which are based out of the hall. There's a group called Drafen, the Celtic Norse, the Red Hand, Guardians of Midgard, Wolves of Odin. And when the festival is going on, each of them, they all gather at the same time and, and camp out and set up their tents. Uh, usually there's one or two groups at a time hanging out there but for the Viking festival all the groups come.
12: So I'm kind of imagining there's just this Viking like community in the North County. W- why is it important for these for everyone to come together in this group and celebrate the Vikings?
11: Well, it's based a lot on just good fellowship and the love of fighting with swords and shooting arrows and stuff like that. But the main thing is good fellowship and uh, also the viking people are very concerned with uh, caretaking of the environment and their family and their friends uh it's not all you know bloodthirsty killing and stuff we really want to show at the festival what the life of the norse people during the viking age was like and most of it was not battling and fighting most of it was being merchants and being farmers and, uh, you know, being businessmen and manufacturers. So we get to see all of that at the Viking Festival. Sure, we have the fighting too, but we want to see what life was really like when people were living closer to the land and more in tune with, uh, with nature at the time.
12: James, how can people participate in this year's online festival?
11: The main outlet will be on Facebook. We've got it set up to run on Facebook where we'll be doing some live programming and some pre-recorded programming. We're going to be putting that up on our YouTube page shortly after it goes out live on Facebook. And just check us out on vistavikingfestival.com and I will be putting up the uh, list of events, times and uh, how to watch on our on our website.
1: That was James Nelson Lucas, director of PR and media for the Vista Viking Festival, speaking with San Diego News Now host Annika Colbert. The Vista Viking Festival is hosting a Walk MS fundraiser at Mediocrity Mead in San Marcos on Saturday. There will be mead, food, and Celtic music starting at 3 p.m. The online Vista Viking Fest will be September 25th and 26th on their Facebook page and YouTube channel.